What is the Wicked Bible? Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. What is the most populous time zone in the United States? And what famous soft drink began with the super name Brad's Drink? <laughs> Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the Off Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity and get some perspective on life. Today, Marsha, when people invent all kinds of products, they have all kinds of alpha names and so forth. But this one, which is a superpower in the soft drink world, began as Brad's Drink <laughs> at a soda fountain in North Carolina. Okay. Was it uh, a guy named Brad Pepsi or something? Brad Coke? His name was Caleb Bradham. Bradham. Ah, tell me. It's Pepsi. <laughs> Yeah. All right. But he wasn't named Brad Pepsi. I know. I was. He was a New Bern <laughs> pharmacist, a pharmacist in New Bern, North Carolina. He began serving a carbonated beverage called Brad's Drink <laughs> in 1893 at the Soda Fountain in his pharmacy. Uh. And that was at the corner of Pollock and Middle Streets, for those who are familiar with New Bern. He believed in the health and energy and digestive benefits of the drink, and he called it Brad's Drink, but then he went to work finding other names for it. So, like Brad's Pepsi Light? And well, <laughs> he purchased the trade name Pep-Cola from a New Jersey company in 1902, and then he incorporated the Pepsi-Cola company and got his formula patented, too. And it was a cola nut and enzyme pepsin. That's what his uh, formula included. And then in 1910, by 1910, Pepsi-Cola was being bottled by 300 companies in 24 states. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, Brad, uh, Brad did okay for himself. Yeah, Caleb Bradham, Brad's drink. Okay. <laughs> you can actually find uh, Bradham Pharmacy bottles online, at, uh, you know, in antique sites online. Oh, antique sites. Yeah. But very cool. Okay, Bob. Okay. In the 1600s, isn't that when you graduated? That's when I graduated, okay. yes. Uh, 1632, to be exact, a version of the King James Bible was published and became known as the Wicked Bible. Why? I think because it had errors. Didn't it have typographical errors in it? Well, one in particular. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the Ten Commandments, wasn't it? You are good. Honest <laughs> All right. Because the word not was left out of the seventh commandment, which made it, thou shalt commit adultery. Oh, I can <laughs> see why that would have been very popular. <laughs> this is a good thing to do. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was very popular and they sold all the copies, just like that newspaper I worked at for the potluck dinner, which kind of had one letter misprint. <laughs> yeah, okay, instead of on. luck, it had the letter F, yeah. <laughs> the pot blank we, dinner, yes. We sold out at lightning speed, okay. <laughs> Okay, another question from the beginning here. What's the most populous time zone in the United States? Well, it would have to be out west. Uh, the West Coast? Yeah, which is, what is that? Is Pacific that Pacific time zone? time zone? Right, the Pacific time zone. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Okay, then it is uh, the uh, eastern. That's right. You know, people who live in the Midwest always say, oh, the coast, everything's about the coast. Well, that's where most of the people live. On the east coast, not yeah. the west coast. The United States Eastern Time Zone, almost half of all Americans live there. More than 47% of the country's people live in the Eastern Time Zone, 
which covers major cities like New York and Miami and Boston and Philadelphia. Okay, and I guess Washington. Uh, if you, yeah, with all those states. What's and the all second those. one then? The What's second the second what? most populous time zone where more people live? Well, now you got me. It's probably uh, mountain. Eastern, Central, Mountain, and Pacific. Yeah. No, Mountain is where the fewest people live, Marcia. That's what I said. We got to wake you, up here, you don't didn't, we? <laughs> you didn't hear me distinctly. <laughs> I said Pacific. <laughs> no. Uh, what's no. That? Here's the. Oh, no, no, you're all wrong on this one. So let me just <laughs> yeah, let's just, just set the record straight. Put me out of my misery. Eastern time zone has 47 percent of the population. Okay. The Central time zone is the next largest covering nearly 30% of the population. That includes Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Missouri, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas, second most populous. The Pacific time zone is home to the third most populous time zone. Even though it's got the most populous state, California has more people than any other state, it only accounts for 16% of the total population of the country. Well, I'll be triggered. And mountain time, the last <laughs> of the four continental time zones, 7% of Americans. Okay, thank you. So that's you. it. So again, it's Eastern, Central, Pacific, and Mountain. That's the order of the most populous time zones in the... Marsha! <laughs> Okay, Bob, what is a telephone booth? A telephone booth? Poem. <laughs> poem. I don't know. A telepoem booth? Uh-huh. Well, so this is some people reading poems over the phone, and then there was a booth where you could go and... Something like that, but uh, it's not uh, in the past. It's now, and you'll, you'll, you'll like the answer to this, Bob. Okay. Okay. A telephone booth is today uh, located... In a few random places like Dubuque, Iowa, and Brisbee, Arizona. Really? Yeah. Instead of, and it's a telephone booth, and instead of uh, phoning home, you go in, <laughs> and there's a directory in there, and you can pick a, a poem and a author of the poem, a poet, uh, out of hundreds of listings, and plug in their number, and that poet will read you their poem. Wait a minute. Plug in whose number? Out of the directory. You put in the number after the poem you want to hear. Oh, you hear a poem. It's yeah. not like you're calling anyone. You get a recording. Oh, so you're there to listen to poems. Yeah, oh, by, by the author. That's strange. The, uh, it's, <laughs> it's a free service. Uh, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny. Sorry. It's, the free, <laughs> it's a free service and the brainchild of artist Elizabeth Hellstrom who has erected so far about a half a dozen booths and says the service helps bring poetry to life. Okay. Well, yeah, it's cool. You don't see phone booths anymore, but they do have uh, these. You want to bring poetry to life. You don't want to bring it to death, so that's good. <laughs> All right, go. Okay, okay. Uh, some word origin questions here. I've got oh, a, I always like those. Yeah, this is kind of funny. What, or what did these words originally mean? The word glorious. Any idea what that used to mean? In the mid-1400s, that's when you were born, wasn't it? <laughs> You're a little older than me. I am a little older, so Okay. 1400s, well, it wasn't glorious. a compliment. Wasn't a compliment. Being glorious. You're glorious. Yeah. What yeah. did that mean? Just think I, about it. I'm trying to. Oh, you're so glorious. <laughs> you're not as good as you think you are. You're boastful. You're ostentatious. Yes. Okay. Fond of splendor. Proud. Haughty. Vain. Glorious. I was right. That's what glorious used to mean. Instead, Obviously. you say now you say that's glorious. It's yeah. wonderful. And here's another one. Night. This dates back to 950. Spell night. K n i g h t. Oh, okay. What was another name for a what night? Did, what was the definition of night back then? What did the word mean? Today we think of it as being a warrior in armor, right? Yes. A knight in but shining back armor. Back then it was uh, 
a, a little... Uh, back in 950, think back to that time when you were living, <laughs> 950 AD. Oh, when my mom and dad would come into the room and say, there's a night outside. And it's uh, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Remember that old song, "The Man in My Little Girl's yeah, Life." There's yeah. a boy outside. Well, that's what it meant—a boy or a lad employed as an attendant or servant. So, by extension, a male servant or an attendant of any age. So that's what "knight" originally meant. It didn't mean, you know, a warrior. Yeah. It meant a boy or okay. somebody you hired for something. There's a knight outside. That's His right. His name is Jim. <laughs> There's a knight outside. It's full of stars. Okay. How did Bob? Yes. James Bond get his name? How did James Bond, Bond, James Bond, get his name? (laughs) I don't know. Well, author Ian Fleming named him after the author of a bird book called West Indian Birds. That's right. I remember this. Did you? Yeah, that there was an author by the name of James Bond, and he wrote a bird book. Yeah. (laughs) So that's uh, that's where where he got it from. Yeah, he was reading it, apparently. He liked it. Had a nice ring to it. I don't know where 007 came from, but... (laughs) <laughs> that's another That's another question for next week. Okay, a weather question, Marcia. The rain in Spain... Stays mainly on the plain. And in other parts of Europe is sometimes red. Why is the rain in Spain sometimes red? R-E-D? R-E-D. <laughs> because it goes through the atmosphere with red dust particles from the dry mountains. Well, you're pretty close. Yeah, the rains come from the storms which lift reddish desert dust from the Sahara Desert and blow that dust across the Mediterranean into cloud banks above Europe. And then the dust particles are washed down as red rain. So the red or blood rains are rare, but they still occur at odd intervals over Italy, southern France, and southeastern Europe. The blood rains used to plunge the people of Europe into a frenzy. They were thought to be diluted blood. Oh, jeez. Oh, no, geez. Nobody knew where the color came from. Oh, dear. But the yeah, rains, that would be disconcerting, wouldn't it? Um, oh, that would give me the creeps, actually. But the rain in Spain sometimes is red. Okay. All right, you recall the bloody horse head scene in the bed from the first Godfather, don't you, Bob? Speaking of blood and red, yes, yes, I do. Okay, what did the producers use for the horse head? That was like the mob put this horse head in this, uh, he woke up with a horse head in bed. in his bed. To scare the hell out of him, he he was supposed to use uh, uh, somebody in his movie. I think the singer, yeah. Yeah. What did they actually use? Yeah. Well, was it a hobby horse's head? No. What was it? It wasn't a prop. It was a real horse's head from a dog food plant in New Jersey. No kidding. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. So they actually do use horses. Yeah, that's why it looks so authentic. It was a real horse's head. So they had it shipped over to Hollywood? Oh, dear Lord. Good times. Oh, God. Okay. Well, here's a science question. How are electrodes helping the paralyzed today? Oh, I think they're helping, like, uh, uh, what do they call them, erectile skeletons? Exoskeletons? Exoskeletons. Exoskeletons, okay, not (laughs) erectoskeletons. That's another Yeah, let's go somewhere else. Okay, Uh, they put them on your body, and the signals help uh, move your legs or whatever? That's kind of what it is, yeah. For years, Swiss researchers have been working on a groundbreaking treatment to reverse paralysis in people with spinal cord injuries. Oh, God. And now an electrode device implanted on the spinal cord has given three paralyzed men the ability to walk, swim, and move within hours. Wow. I am free, Michael Roccati from Italy told CNN. I can walk whenever I want to. He lost the ability to walk after a motorcycle accident in 2017. But today, equipped with this electrode device implanted on his spinal cord, 
He can now stand at the bar drinking with friends, showering <laughs> without a chair, strolling through town with a walker. What a thrill that must be. Isn't that great? Do you ever see those videos of babies who hear for the first time? Oh, yeah, I love those. Yeah, what a thrill. Okay, Bob, who has the warmest pelt in the Arctic, and who can survive the coldest temperatures? I would say grizzly bears. Yeah, you'd think. But no, it's the Arctic fox. The Arctic fox. It can survive minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit. The fox has fluffy tails, which they can cover their heads with like a built-in blanket for added insulation. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. How do the bears survive? They go in caves or they're... They go in hibernation. They, they go in hibernation or but dig still, into the snow. You have to have a you know heavy pelt or something. Yes. Well, apparently it's the... So it's the Arctic fox. Yeah. Okay. Now, that's a, a smaller animal yeah. that's uh, fast. And more, and more lithe. And, yeah. More live? Lithe. Well, more life? Lithe. Oh, lithe, L-I-T-H-E. <laughs> that is a hard thing to hear. Even here, we're just a few feet from each other, and I couldn't understand you said lithe. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, meticulous. What was the original meaning of that word? This is, goes back to 1540, again, back in your grade school days, I think. <laughs> oh, you're really coming at me now. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I've unlaunched. I've un, un, unleashed. Unleashed. <laughs> un, let me help you with your words today. Unleashed. It's too early. You're I'm, not lithe I'm... enough with those words <laughs> and being unleashed. The, the, question, the word is meticulous. Yeah. What did it originally it have, mean? Does it have anything to do with metal? No. Then I don't know. It has to do with details, of course, but originally it meant fearful or timid. And then the 1820s, it came to mean being too careful regarding details. Oh. So meticulous. Yes. As though it was a bad way, you know. Uh-huh. Eventually, however, being meticulous became a positive thing. But originally, it meant fearful, timid, refrained from doing things, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. How long, Bob, does it take a sloth to digest a meal? <laughs> <laughs> Judging from those TV commercials, yeah. a long, long time. Those are time. so funny. Yeah. Okay. Just give me a ballpark here. How long does it take to digest a meal? Yeah. So instead of hours, maybe three days? Maybe. How long? Up to one month. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they are slow, and that's why they're so slow. They digest very slowly. They have a very slow metabolism. They do. Wow. That's uh, just the way they roll. They survive on leaves, twigs, and flowers when they're just hanging around. <laughs> you know, upside down. Okay. okay. And they're interesting in that, you know, modern humans have been around for 200,000 years, where sloths have hung around for over 64 million years. Jeez. Yeah, that's a... That's... And what have they done? <laughs> what have they got to show for it? <laughs> this... And can I give you a did you know? Did you know that pandas eat a fourth of their weight every day? Wow. Yeah. A that's fourth of their weight? Every day. Jeez. Just, just thought that's, uh, that's, that's more than me. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> At least this weekend. Or me. Oh, you <laughs> this, don't, don't she, put yourself down like cheeseburgers that. Cheeseburgers and pizza do not a uh, great look, diet make. You look wonderful. <laughs> I okay, love you. I think it's time to take a break. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. <laughs> and Marsha. We'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> We're back here on the off-ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Some questions on world capitals, Marcia. Going to give you three world capitals. Tell me, which is the farthest north, okay? Okay. Athens, Greece. Uh-huh. Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. Seoul, South Korea. Uh-huh. Or Rabat, Morocco. I'd say D.C. Why? Because it's... If when I'm looking at a world map in my head, 
which I do every day. Do you? Okay. It looks like D.C. is above those. Well, you're right. It is. Now, it's funny because we consider Washington, D.C. It's a southern city. It's yeah, right it's on the warm. edge of the south, right? Uh-huh. But it's actually farther north than all these cities. And although we often think of Europe as being much farther north than the United States, you may be surprised to learn that America's capital is actually located at a more northerly latitude than all of those, including the capital of Greece. Not by much, though. Well, Washington, D.C. sits at a latitude of 38 9 degrees north. Athens is at 37.8 degrees north. So they're almost the same. But it's also north of the uh, capital of Morocco and South Korea. That's I thought that was fascinating. Well, I got it right. Uh, yes, you well, did. One of many today. Let's we'll see if you can get this right. Okay. So what is the world's <laughs> northernmost capital? The world's? The country with the capital that is well, farther is it, north than any other. Uh, is it... Uh, uh, I'll give you a hint. Reykjavik? Re- Reykjavik. Reykjavik. That's exactly right. I was going to give you a hint. I was going to say, did it's, it an, again. it's an island. You <laughs> did. Yes. It's at a latitude of 64.1 degrees north. Okay, one more question on <laughs> countries, okay? I'm not going to get three in a row. We're going to try. How many landlocked countries are there in Europe? In Europe. They don't have a coast anywhere. How many are there total, do you know? There are about uh, more than 40 countries in Europe. So okay. How many? I will say... I'll give you numbers. Okay. 12, 23, 15, or 17? I'll say 23. It's 17. Oh, okay. So it's close, though. You did a good job there. Thank yeah. you, honey. Yeah, 17 <laughs> of Europe's more than 40 countries do not feature a coast or a sea or an ocean. So these countries include Andorra, Armenia, Austria, Belarus, Kosovo, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Kazakhstan, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, Macedonia, Moldova, San Marino, Serbia, Slovakia, Switzerland, and Vatican City. They still flourish, though, due to uh, beneficial trade agreements and abundant agriculture. Uh, How many of the 10 most common surgeries in the U.S. can you name? Are we talking like arms and legs being broken as surgery? That's, that's a surgery, Okay, yes. so I would say limbs, L-I-M-B-S. Okay, is, that's number three. Okay, I, I was going to say one. Tonsillectomies? No, not on here. Oh, really? The top ten. I think that would be one. You would, but no. Oral surgery? Do we have that, like for teeth? Yeah, but okay. no, not as the top ten. Okay, tell me the top ten. Okay, the most common, joint replacement. Oh. And now those shoulders and knees. Wow, now listen to that, joint replacement. Yeah. So these are basically embedding some kind of device within your, in body. your body. That's the number one surgery yeah, now. Yeah. Holy cow. I'll do the 10 in, in order. Thank of you. <laughs> joint replacement, circumcision, Ooh. broken bones, angioplasty and arithoectomy. Okay. Stent procedure, hysterectomy, gallbladder removal, and heart bypass surgery is number 10. I would have put heart bypass up much higher. I would think so too, plus gallbladder. That's a pretty common yeah. surgery, I thought. Well, that's nine. But, I mean, I thought it would be higher. Higher, yeah. Very interesting. I thought so. I still, again, back that the number one surgery is where you're implanting something, you're replacing something. I think it's become a little too common myself. Uh, Yeah, that's what I hear. Yeah. People criticizing it. Yeah. Okay. The Eiffel Tower. What was the original color of the Eiffel Tower painted? Want me to give you some choices? Uh This is in 1889, so keep that in mind. Okay. Purple, yellow, gray, turquoise, red. Really? What were they? I'll say red. It was reddish brown, yeah. Oh, ding, red. ding, ding again. You're very good. I am on a roll. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> anyway, so a reddish brown paint color used to protect the structure against rust, but uh, a decade later, they tried yellow. <laughs> Can't imagine the Eiffel Tower painted yellow. 
Can you? <laughs> no, no. They kind of disappear against the sky. Well, also, it's kind of disgusting. Lots of different colors in the past 130 years. Okay, Marcia, here's something I hadn't even thought of. The Eiffel Tower originally wasn't going to be in Paris. Where was oh, it going really? to be? Yeah. Oh, how would that I'll give Paris you choices here. Wouldn't be Paris without it. This comes from uh, travelquiz.com, kind of an interesting one. They did a whole uh, thing on the Eiffel Tower, so I pulled a couple questions from it. So, Quebec City. Barcelona, Nice, France, or London? Which one of those cities was originally going to get the Eiffel Tower? I'll say Quebec. Good answer, but no, it wasn't. Not not in the Americas. So okay. next. Nice? No. Okay, tell me. Barcelona. Really? Now, it was originally pitched, the Eiffel Tower, but the Spanish city rejected Gustav Eiffel's plans because they thought it would be an eyesore, which was the complaint by a lot of Parisians when it first went up oh, in Paris. Oh, they didn't have What one. an eyesore! Yeah, a bunch of metal up to the sky. But it finally found a home in Paris serving as a symbol of the 1889 World's Fair, basically the International Exposition. I love that they lit it up so cool. All right, okay. how many steps are there to the top of the Eiffel Tower? I'll give 1, you... Okay, go ahead. 349 steps, 1,665, 10,342, or 2,900? I'll say 1,665. Bingo, you are right on target today. Wow. Wow, yeah. From the esplanade to the top of the tower, 1,665. However, only the 674 steps leading to the second floor are open to the public now, and now you have to take the elevator. Yeah. Uh, but it has, and there are multiple elevators to support visitors to the top, but uh, only a select number of people, athletes, get the chance to climb. Oh, really? Oh, athletes. 1,665 steps. There's an annual Eiffel Tower vertical race. Can oh, you imagine that? Oh, my goodness. That would be a Remember how we were there, how huge oh, that yeah. is. I can't imagine racing to the top of the Eiffel Tower. should put that in a scene from Rocky, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what substance melts pearls? A substance melts pearls. So it's not just regular, it's a heat, but what makes the heat? It's a substance. No, it's something actually we recently purchased. Oh, I bet I know what it is. You wash things with it and uh, you You, can cook with it. You got uh, gasoline on your coat at the uh, gas station and this took out the smell. Vinegar. That's right. <laughs> Vinegar. I couldn't think of it. It melts pearls, removes gasoline no smell. I mean, it's amazing. Somebody should make a business out of that. <laughs> yeah. And just rename it, right? And, and jack up the price. Well, that's true. <laughs> and that's that's what happens all the time. Vinegar. Uh, wow. Okay. I'll give you just a couple of did you knows. Okay. And that's, uh, did you know peanuts are one of the ingredients in dynamite? No. Yeah. Peanuts? Yeah. (laughs) Really? And that the skin that peels off your body when you have sunburn, you know, on your arms and back and so forth, it's called blight. B-L-Y-P-E. Never heard of that. (laughs) Hey, Bob, you got blight. Let me help you there. Good Lord. (laughs) You blight. Okay, I've got uh, three more. What's the original meaning of these words, okay? Okay. Mischievous. What did it used to mean? What do you think of it now? Someone who's a, a adorably... Uh, kind of a clown, kind of a clownish. joker. Yes. Mischievous. Yes. No, it originally meant of an event or occurrence, unfortunate, calamitous, disastrous. That meaning goes back to a, the 1390s, a person miserable, needy, and poverty-stricken. <laughs> All right, nice. In the 1390s, again, going back to your youth, in the 1390s, calling somebody nice meant you were saying they were... 
Foolish or simple. Oh, okay. And one more. All right. Pragmatic. What did that mean in the 1600s? No idea. Busy, active, interfering, meddling, intrusive. If you were pragmatic, you were anything but pragmatic. Yeah. We think that as being practical. I wonder how that reversed over the years. I don't know. Pragmatic, busy, active, interfering. According to the ultimate book of useless information, my personal go-to, <laughs> uh, a cubic mile of seawater <laughs> contains an average of more than $117 million worth of gold and $11 million worth of silver. That's hard to believe. Really? Isn't it? Yeah. This is, and that's uh, seawater. Yeah, and this book is several years old, so it's probably worth more now. Wow. Yeah, that's a cubic mile. That's, okay. Yeah. Who invented the straw? Wow, hadn't thought of that. Think about it. Bet that person made a lot of money. <laughs> Inventing the straw. Yes. Is this recent? I mean, does it go back to like 200 years ago or something? It's not that recent, no. Oh, it goes way, way back. Egypt or something <laughs> like that? Exactly. It was developed by Egyptian brewers to taste beer without removing the fermenting ingredients that floated on top of the container. Oh, so darn. they wanted to taste test the beer as they were fermenting it. Well, weren't we always told, don't drink beer with a straw, it'll make you drunker? Remember well, that when we were kids? Those Egyptians were pretty crazy, Bob. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. That's amazing. Okay. You want to guess some of the fastest sports in the Winter Olympics, actually the top two or three? Downhill skiing, they were going like 70 miles an hour or more. Uh -huh. So I'd say that was one of them. Uh -huh. Bobsledding, that's probably one of them. The top three are the luge, skeleton, and bobsleds. What were the speeds of those three? The luge and the bobsleds are over 90, 93, 95. And then the skeleton, which scared us to death. Remember that? Was, yes. That was uh, over 80. That's the one where you're... Laying down on a sled head first with nothing, yeah, no protection just, at all. That's just crazy. Going 80 miles an hour, how easily kill yourself with a head injury. Absolutely. Jeez. Let's uh, not do it this holiday. All right, we'll just wait till next year to try that one. A <laughs> little more training, maybe. And I'm wearing a helmet, damn it. <laughs> okay. How much water, Bob, do you think it takes to make a pair of blue jeans? Oh, I never thought of that. Oh. So how much water has to go through in the process for yeah. a pair of blue jeans? Uh -huh. hmm. It takes more water than to make beer. Oh, really? <laughs> to make, how much? That's our comparison to everything. That is. Okay. It takes around 1,800 gallons of water to grow enough cotton to produce just one pair of regular blue jeans. Hmm. More water than it takes to make a ton of cement or a barrel of beer. And, and that's just in terms of growing cotton. When you take into account the dye process. That's what I was thinking. As well as the machine wash, almost uh, 10,000 gallons of water are used. For a pair of blue jeans? Yeah. So wow. from, from cotton to the uh, wash before they send it out for you to buy is uh, almost 10,000 gallons of water. Whew, that's a lot. Per pair of jeans. That's just amazing. Yeah. All right. You got a quote there to wrap I things do. up? This is a quote from sports analyst Joe Theismann. He said, the word genius isn't applicable in football. A genius is a guy like Norman Einstein. What? <laughs> Norman Einstein? Uh, oh, geez. Yeah, he doesn't like that everybody says, oh, he's a genius, uh, you know, quarterback or this or that. He uh, said, that's not that's not a word applicable in football. Norm, but Norman Einstein. Norman I that's a genius. He's a genius. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, that's, the, uh, that's all we have time for today. We hope you've enjoyed our trivia. We hope you enjoy us next time when we return. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. And this has been The Off-Ramp. Off -Ramp.
The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.